Welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts and philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today, I have another special guest with me, Stephen Nemesh, and we're going to be talking about divine simplicity. And so before we jump in, uh, Stephen, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Thank you for having me. So um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your work, uh, your your area of academic interest? Sure. I am a doctoral candidate at Fuller Theological Seminary studying under uh, Dr. Oliver Crisp. Uh, My dissertation is titled A Constructive Theological Phenomenology of Scripture. So Mm. I would say that my principal research interest is philosophical theology. Um, On the philosophical side, I try to be phenomenological. Um, On the theological side, I try to be broadly ecumenical and orthodox without being strictly confessional in any particular sense, although I'm sort of hard to pin. My theological inclinations and sympathies lie in Reformed theology, orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, Anglicanism, a lot of... I'm sort of all over the place, so I, I, I... Try to be, like I said, ecumenical and orthodox without being strictly confessional. Yeah. Um, like I said, philosophically, my influences are principally in phenomenology, and my dissertation is a, a, a phenomenological work. But I also am influenced by um, Thomism, uh, and my background is in analytic philosophy. So even though I study phenomenology and I do phenomenology, I have a background in analytic philosophy, and that certainly influences the way that I write. Uh, and I've, of course, I've interacted a lot with, you know, the so-called Fuller School of Analytic Theology, uh, people like, you know, Dr. Arcadi, Dr. Turner, Dr. Wessling, Dr. Crisp, uh, Dr. Wozniki. So I, I interact with those guys, all of whom have some connection with analytic philosophy and write in a sort of an analytic philosophical way. So I'm a blend of a lot of different influences is yeah. Yeah, that's really what I am. Well, that's so cool, too. Um, there's like this movement um maybe maybe it's been longer than uh, it's been going on longer than i know but of analytic um christian philosophers at least going back to phenomenology and and bringing it up to date using it in in constructive theology and philosophy i just had brandon rickaba on and uh his his um his project is the unity of consciousness and he's going to he's using husserl and mm-hmm. it's this deep you know really, really analytic. I was super lost until he was explaining it to me, but he's using Husserl. And it was so cool to see that this analytic kind of continental divide that you guys are, you're, you're bridging it. Sweet. Yeah. Um, so Brandon Rickabod, you know, talks about Husserl probably because he's influenced by like JP Moreland and Dallas Willard. And yeah. these guys, you know, dealt with Husserl through Willard, Dallas Willard, yeah, Willard. Had studied Husserl and had written a lot about him. Um, I wish that more analytic, you know, philosophers and analytic theologians would interact with phenomenology because I, I, I always, you know, what's interesting is, you know, as you go on throughout your life and you think about things, you have different impulses or tendencies of thinking habits of thought within Mm -hmm. you. And depending on what you're reading or what you're working on at some point in time, certain uh, tendencies and habits of thought are amplified and uh, cultivated and others are left to the side. Mm-hmm. I always had this phenomenological bent. I always had this sort of preoccupation with conscious experience, but it was only until later on in my life that I found a, you know, phenomenological literature, which gave me a vocabulary and a way of expressing that 
that impulse, that tendency of thought, which previously had been dormant. Yeah. So I, I had already had, I've always had this kind of phenomenological bent, but actually reading phenomenology later in my life helped me to recognize it for what it was and to put it into, into words and to, you know, uh, really f- uh, strengthen it and fortify it and, and cultivate it, yeah. you know, make it into something more than just this inchoate tendency of thought. Yeah. What, uh, who do you like? Who do you like uh, phenomenology wise? I think, so I, I, wanted for a while to read phenomenology but it was not it was only until i read uh introduction to phenomenology by robert sokolowski that i really was able to understand what is being said so i think that that text by robert sokolowski is extremely important uh dan zahavi also has a book called phenomenology the basics which is excellent a very accessible introduction and in general i think dan zahavi is one of the more accessible phenomenological writers but i think my favorites are certainly jean-luc marion and michel henry uh, they are less easy to read. I, I think I appreciate them more because I'm familiar with the phenomenological vocabulary and the way of thinking. And yeah. uh, it's true that phenomenology, you know, like somebody once said, you know, to become a phenomenologist, the scales have to fall off your eyes. You have to, mm-hmm. you have to learn how to think and to see things in a, in a different way from a different angle. But once you do, there's no turning back. Once you are able to finally see, you know, take the phenomenology, the phenomenologist point of view on something, it's like there's no way to return to another way of doing philosophy. You realize that all of philosophy has to be done from this this point of view. Yeah. Um, and it, it was it took a while, but once I was able to really, you know, sort of um, uh, adopt that attitude and to really learn how to think from that point of view, it it just became natural for me. It's just the way that I do philosophy now. Yeah. Uh, but I would say that my favorite phenomenologist lately, at least, is Michel Henry. Okay. Uh, he has two books on Christianity, which offer sort of, well, he has more books on Christianity, but he, he has two books which offer a kind of a phenomenological interpretation of Christianity. Uh, one of them is called I Am the Truth uh, Toward a Philosophy of Christianity. And the other one is called Words of Christ. Uh, and Words of Christ was something that he finished writing or that he wrote very shortly before his death. And it was it was published in French, I think, in 2002 or so. And it was published in English in translation in 2012. So Words of Christ, I've been reading that one lately. And I have to say that Michel Henry has really been influencing my own understanding of Christianity. This is what's interesting about him. Hmm. Uh, We tend to think of Christianity as positing various realities, you know, objective realities out there in the world. Uh, We think that Paul really did go from Jerusalem to Athens or whatever. You know, he did all these missions. Mm -hmm. Uh, We tend to think of the truths of Christianity as being objective truths, truths that are to be sought in the, you know, the objectivity of the outside world, so to speak. What's interesting about Michel Henry is that he reinterprets Christianity to be fundamentally about subjectivity. He thinks that Mm -hmm. the real teaching of Christianity are truths about subjective life. They're not about the world. He doesn't mean to say, of course, that like Jesus never existed or that Paul didn't do those missions. He just means to say that the substance of Christian teaching is not about things that happen in the world. It's about these facts of subjectivity. Mm. Uh, And the most interesting one, I just recently submitted a paper for review uh, on this topic. The most interesting one is he says that God, this is going to be exactly the opposite of what we're going to talk about today with divine simplicity. Mm -hmm. He says that God is not, you know being or something like that out there in the world in the realm of objectivity he says god is life uh and he doesn't mean by life a sort of a universal property that all living things have force or something right yeah no he means like subsistent life a subsistent living you know absolute life as he calls it Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and all of us, insofar as we're living, insofar as we have life, not as this biological property of our bodies, but mm -hmm. as a phenomenological, a sense of ourselves, as long as we are aware of ourselves as living. We participate in him? Is that Right, exactly. Okay. Right. And so he thinks that the fundamental teachings of Christ are about this relationship between the subjective, excuse me, the, the particular living human being, uh, vivant is what he calls it, and absolute life, which is God. Yeah. He says everything turns back to this, the relationship between the, the finite living being and God as absolute life in which the living being participates. And what's interesting, I love this passage where he quotes from Meister Eckhart. Uh, he says that if we accept this definition of God as absolute life, then it follows that we know what God is. And this is going to be exactly the opposite of what I'm going to tell you later about divine simplicity. Yeah. If we accept this definition of God as absolute life, we know what God is. And he, he cites this passage from Meister Eckhart where he calls the human being um, ein Gottwissende Mensch, uh, a human being who knows God. Hmm. Uh, so he, he thinks that this is the one of the biggest differences in, you know, locating God in the realm of subjectivity rather than in the realm of objective being yeah. is that you actually know what God is and you are constantly with God all the time. As long as you're alive, you know, God is continually giving you life mm -hmm. um, and you know what God is. So I, I have been thinking a lot about this. I just wrote a paper in which I compare Thomas Aquinas's argument for the existence of God in the De Ente et Essentia mm -hmm. with this stuff from Michel Henry in uh, Words of Christ, because I think that the two arguments are formally very sim similar, but they end up in very different places with respect yeah. to you know what it is that God is and how can we know him. Uh, so I just wrote a paper where I, I write about, where I talk about that and I compare the two philosophies. Um, this is a project that I want to pursue for, further. You know, two ways to God, uh, you know, depending on whether you start with objective being or subjective life yeah. uh, and what are the differences for our conception of God, you know, depending on where you start philosophically. That's that's a project that I want to pursue further. That's huge. Just real quick. So so this isn't uh, a podcast on phenomenology, but it's so interesting. Uh, does Henri distinct like does he have a place for the creator creature distinction in that in that model? Uh, you know, what's interesting. He. <clears throat> Because he is not a metaphysician and because he, you know, doesn't begin with objectivity. So yeah. for him, you know, in his mind, there's a fundamental decision to make about how to pursue philosophy. You can begin with objectivity or you can begin with life and subjectivity. Hmm. And so because he begins with subjectivity, um, he doesn't talk about things in exactly the same terms. It's not as if he doesn't believe in a creation uh, but some people, for example, do criticize him on precisely this point. Uh, hmm. There's a, there's another phenomenologist. His name is Felix Omerkada. He teaches in Ireland. Um, and he has a book called Phenomenology of Christian Life. And he critiques Henri on precisely this point. He says that Henri's conception of things, beginning with subjectivity and so on, uh, kind of undermines the Christian preoccupation with creation. Mm. Uh, and he says that there's no, there's no real obvious place in uh, Henri's interpretation of Christianity for Christ to save the created cosmos. Okay. Um, Henri sort of really talks badly about creation and about objective being. Uh, that's because he thinks that, you know, after the 20th century, after the phenomenology of the 20th century, really what you can, all you can say about objectivity is that it is this realm of like endless hermeneutics where you're constantly interpreting and there's always a new angle to look at things and you can't yeah. really come at a final answer. Yeah. Um, and, you know, things are passing away. It's like this Herac, you know, this, this like the flux of Heraclitus where things are, you just can't grab onto anything. Yeah. Um, he says that the problem with situating Christian teaching and Christian truth in this realm 
is that really, strictly speaking, nothing is true here. You just have a bunch of opinions and a bunch of appearances, and you know you have this endless hermeneutics. He yeah, thinks you look at Protestants and all the different denominations, and right. He says yeah. you have to you have to situate the truth of Christianity in subjectivity because that's mm. really where truth is. And it, he'll say at the end of the day, there is no such thing as an objectivity that doesn't presuppose a subjectivity. Right? There are no objects; they're just objects for subjects. Mm. And if things didn't appear to us, then we wouldn't know what to say about them. Yeah, right? we can only talk about things as they appear to us, and so our, we are, you know, ourselves included in the definition of objectivity. So he'll, you know, he would say something like, uh, "Starting with objectivity is disastrous because, in the first place, you will never be able to find God in this objective world of, mm. you know, fluctuating appearances, and in the second place, you know, there is no such thing as an objectivity. the 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 actual direction is objectivity is founded on subjectivity." Mm-hmm. You know, you, subjectivity is not something that arises within this subjective realm, you know, in yeah. some emergent way. Rather, objectivity presupposes subjectivity. So that's that's probably what he would say in response to that critique. I'm I, I'm um I like that studying like philosophy of mind stuff. Um, I, I like that because there's like this modernist bent that you got to build up subjectivity from the objective. And, and if we can, we'll, we'll rid ourselves of the first person perspective anyways, to get to the, the objective scientific third person. Right. Um, but it, it does sound weird to say like, yeah, there's no uh, objective truth. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I feel like we need to have that tension, right. Of like, there is the object. You can't get rid of the subject. Obviously. Um, I, I guess just for our listeners here, here who don't know about phenomenology, um, well, we've talked about it a lot, the phenomena and the noumena. Um, can you give us just a quick definition? How do you define phenomenology? Uh, so if you go etymologically, phenomenology is reasoned discourse or logos about mm-hmm. what appears, you know, the phenomenon. Uh, but if you, want a more, if you want a more colloquial definition, Robert Sokolowski in that book that I referenced, Introduction to Phenomenology, he defines it as the study of human experience and of the ways in which things present themselves to us in and through such experience. Yeah. So the idea for phenomenology is that <clears throat> uh, experience is where we find out about things. Experience is where we learn about being, right? So phenomenology is the study of things through the way that they're encountered in experience, right? We don't start with theories. We don't start with like uh, assumptions about what things have to be. We go to experience and we'd say, okay, how does this thing show itself to my, to me in experience? What, what do I, what am I actually, you know, justified in saying about it, given the way that it discloses itself in experience? Yeah. Okay. I, I, um, yeah, I like that. That, that sounds the, 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 uh, more, the more modern um, folks that you're just talking about, uh, Henri, sounds like, so we've talked about Kant's uh, divide between the, the phenomenal and the noumenal. It sounds like he's just kind of adopted the phenomenal and said, this is, this is it. There, yeah, there is no noumena. Right. Um, everything is phenomena and that's okay. And that's the way it is. Does, does that sound like what he's doing? I think that that's fairly accurate as a as a general statement of the phenomenological position i i mean for example you find arguments like this in barclay and then you find michelle uh, uh maurice merleau-ponty giving arguments like this later on uh, even referencing barclay yeah. uh, let's say why even talk about a noumenon right if i if i literally cannot experience it if it does not show itself yeah. uh, if all that i have access to are phenomena why would i posit anything beyond that mm. uh, and you might give an argument like this you might say that you know 
um, I can only be justified in asserting something if it shows itself to me in some way, right? So the, the, the justification for my assertions are precisely acts of consciousness. Um, but a noumenon, a genuine noumenon, could not show itself to me at all, because otherwise it would become phenomenal. Right. Uh, so therefore, there could be no reason for positing a, you know, there could be no justification for positing something beyond what appears. Um, you know, so of course we have to be clear in phenomenology, appearance is not necessarily like sensual appearance, right? So okay. if, there are other, uh, uh, phenomenology is concerned with intuition. The word, in, the, the, the word for like an experience where you're, for something is present to you is intuition in phenomenology. So for okay. example, if I look over there, I can intuit my dog because it's, it's laying over there, but there are other forms of intuition. It's not just like sensual objects that are intuited. Mathematical truths are intuited. Because you can okay. gain a grasp of the concept, you know, two, for example, and addition mm -hmm. and equality, and then you can form the notion of two plus two equals four. Right? Yeah. So mathematical truths are something that can, are, are things that can be intuited. Um, quarks and, and subatomic particles and stuff. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So, I mean, if they are real, in principle, yeah. they can be intuited. Maybe if right now they're just hypothetically posited. Uh, and, you know, maybe there's, but if, if they're real in some way, there should be some experience, some form of consciousness where their presence could be intuited, um, okay. you know, if we're going to posit them. Okay. Um, so that, that, but that would be the idea, right? The idea is that like anything that can be intuited in some way can be asserted, yeah. but the noumenon by definition cannot be intuited because it cannot become an object of consciousness. And so therefore it cannot be asserted. That seems like what, what a lot of, uh, Christians have, critiqued Kant over, over his transcendental idealism, saying, well, that doesn't actually get us to reality, so we're left in skepticism. And so it sounds like the, the phenomenologists go, well, no, it's just there's no escape from the the phenomenal realm because it's the realm that we experience things in. So you're asking me to experience something I can't experience, and I'm not worried about that critique. Is that Right, exactly. And Maurice Merleau-Ponty even says this. He says, what possible meaning could something have for me if it literally cannot be experienced? Like, why would I? It doesn't yeah. show itself. I could never feel it. I could never see it. I could never intuit it at the end of an argument, right? I yeah. could never form any. Why do I care about it? If it, yeah. if it literally is nothing to me, you know, why, why should I care about it? Why should I posit it? Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, this is really interesting stuff. So uh, for listeners who are not interested in phenomenology, sorry, but that was just it was too good for me to uh, to pass up there. I um, well, if you uh, want to, if you want to talk about this stuff again, I you know I've I've completed my dissertation. It's a phenomenology of scripture, and it incidentally is the first phenomenology of scripture that's been written, as far as I can, okay. as far as I know. Other people have written on the topic of phenomenology of scripture, but nobody's ever done a complete discussion of a phenomenology of scripture and everything yeah. that, that entails. So if you want, we could talk about all this stuff on, a, on another occasion. I know, we're supposed, yeah, I know we're supposed to talk about divine yeah. simplicity now, but we could talk about all this. That stuff would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, just a really quick following up. So uh, I, I gained a new appreciation for at least Husserl um, from like Roger Scruton. And uh, and he talks about like the the Lebensvelt, uh and the, the, life, the, world. the yeah. life world, yeah. And that was so cool to me because I respect this dude as an analytic uh, philosopher, and he's a popularizer too, or was. But um, but he's doing this really good work of going back like to the split where phenomenology yeah. first started and analytic philosophy started, and they were friends and they liked each other before yeah. all the beef. And so I again I just appreciate what you're doing and. Uh, Aaron Preston and, and, and Brent Rickabaugh, some of these guys who are saying, well, I don't care. I'm not buying into the, the, the modern debate. I'm going back. And if I can use it, I'll use it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, 
have a similar attitude. You know, I don't particularly care to be doing anything, you know, specific. I, I'm not, I do phenomenology, but I don't have like qualms about departing from Husserl or departing from Merleau-Ponty or any of these guys. Um, I don't have a concern with doing anything particularly. I just want to do philosophy and theology, right? And however it is that it turns out, wherever my, you know, I just draw from whatever sources seem useful to me and and, uh, seem right. And whatever I come up with, that's what I think is true. Yeah. I don't care to be doing anything in particular. Yeah. Stephen, this this brings us to um, classical theism. You're you're a classical theist and it sounds pretty weird to be like, yeah, he's a a classical theist and he's a phenomenologist. And because you in my mind, man, maybe this is a prejudice, but I think of classical theism, usually the dudes are super duper hardcore, like this is the way it is. And if you depart from this, you're departing from Christian history, you're departing from. Um, so that's not you, which is really cool. Can you help us? Like what, what is classical theism and why, why are you a classical theist? Yeah, um, classical theism, you might sort of define it historically. Classical theism is that you know, conception of God, which was dominant, let's say, for like the first 1500 years of church history or something. Um, And that has some overlap with the conception of God in other religions, uh, like in medieval Judaism, in Maimonides, for example, or in Islam, Mm -hmm. uh, even in, you know, theistic versions of Hinduism, and even like the the non-dual versions of Vedanta, for example, describe Mm -hmm. Brahman in, in categories that are reminiscent of the more apophatic wings of classical Christian theism. Interesting. Uh, basically, I think the idea in classical theism, uh, I'm trying to remember, how did, I, how did I define it for my students this year? I understand that for classical theism, God is first and foremost an absolute, right? Okay. The, the basis and the foundation <laughs> of everything. That's the, the essential notion of God in absoluteness, yeah, in, awesome. in classical theism. That's great. Yeah, okay. Yeah, keep going, please. I'm just excited yeah, about yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and so personally, I think that the most essential notion for classical theism is the doctrine of divine simplicity, uh, because okay. divine simplicity is precisely a way of formulating God's absoluteness. Uh, so if if everything else, right, if God is absolute and everything else is relative, um, well, one of the ways that things are relative is by being composite. Mm-hmm. Um, and here we need to give a definition of the doctrine of divine simplicity. In my definition, which admittedly is idiosyncratic, I say that the doctrine of divine simplicity teaches that God is not an individual with qualities. Uh, so, for example, you know, it, it, typically you'll hear people talk about God like uh, divine simplicity like this. God is uh, not composite. He's not a composite of matter and form. He's not yeah. a composite of essence and existence. Uh, whatever properties he has, they're all really the same property, and he's identical to that. I think all those ways of talking about God are like they they get at what classical theism is saying or what the doctrine of divine simplicity is saying, but I think that they're misleading. I think that the more, the more straightforward way of formulating the doctrine of divine simplicity is just to say that God is not an individual with qualities. He is not an individual with properties. Okay. So in this way, we can distinguish between the individual with properties and God. God is not an individual with properties. He is not like, you know, a being that exemplifies the nature of divinity. And, you know, he's the only such being of, you know, only being of such a kind. And that's why we have monotheism. Nothing like that. I prefer to just, you know, lean heavy into the apophatic interpretation of divine simplicity and say that God is not an individual with qualities. If you want to say something about him positively, you could say that he is just pure being or pure actuality. 
but he is not an individual with qualities. He is not something that is purely actual because that would turn him into an individual with qualities. Um, he is not something that possesses, you know, the property of divinity or anything like that. He simply is not an individual with qualities at all. Yeah. So you said this is idiosyncratic. So you said, um, I think you, you were addressing Aquinas there, like the actus purus, right? Like God is pure act. So you're, you would say that God is not pure act? No, it's not that I wouldn't say that he's pure act. Okay. It's that I would say that he's not an individual with qualities so as to like make clear what is pure actuality. Yeah. Like, I don't mean, for example, that God has only actual properties and no potential properties. That's not what I mean. Okay. Uh, and that's not what Thomas meant either. Okay. Uh, by pure actuality, he means just pure isness, just pure actuality, right? He, uh, and of course, that's another way of saying that God is not an individual with qualities. If yeah. he were, he would fit within some genus. And right. Aquinas everywhere denies that God, you know, fits within a genus. He is not if, an individual of some kind. Yeah, if there's some genus, genus, then it can be instantiated again. There could be all other gods, or or just even if it, if even if it isn't, or it could like logically be. Right. Such that there are other gods. Right. I mean, there's nothing about the genus as such that prevents it from being multiply exemplified. Yeah. Right? So even if there is actually only one cat in the entire world, there's nothing about felinity per se <laughs> that, you know, excludes the possibility of other right. cats existing. Right. right. Uh, but God is not like that. To say that God is in a genus is precisely to say that he is not within some category. He is not an instance of anything. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how, in order for me to uh, communicate the same idea, I say that God is not an individual with qualities because if he is not an individual with qualities, then he's not an instance of anything. Yeah. So initially that, that definition sounds like he's not an individual. It sounds like it's like counteracting, countermanding his uh, personality. He's not an individual. So like, yeah. Can we say he about God? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, nothing stops us. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can do whatever you want. Well, it sounds like yeah. when you're saying he, you're, you're like individuating him right like there's this yeah. being that's god and he yeah. has you know he loves us or something yeah. and, and it sounds like we're we're con contradicting ourselves so yeah. i would here i will distinguish between classical theism and christian classical theism okay cool cool for me classical theism is a philosophical doctrine okay it's a yeah. conception of god that begins on the basis of reflection about the principles of existence or the mm -hmm. nature of the world mm -hmm. and it terminates in the you know the positing of this pure actuality which is the basis of everything okay so okay. that's philosophical classical theism yeah that's um, helpful here's another thing i'm going to say and this will sound controversial but i think actually that this is the truth and you know it will save people a lot of headaches there is nothing about the concept of god philosophically that demands that you adopt religious attitudes towards him mm-hmm so I'm going to say that there's nothing about the philosophical classical theism that demands that you relate in a certain way to him. I think that religion as a mode of, of relating towards God is not something that flows out of the concept of God. It's something that flows out of life experiences. Hmm. So there's nothing about pure actuality, that notion that demands that I worship it. But in my life, if I should have a moment where I'm just happy to be alive, and then I recognize that my life is itself because of God, then I can be thankful towards God. So the, the religious attitude begins in a life experience and not with the concept of God. Yeah. Um, and Christianity is a religious tradition, right? It arose as a result of various religious experiences had by people. Uh, and within this tradition, you refer to God as he. Mm -hmm. That's just the traditional way of doing it. Uh, so I don't have any problem with that. It's not as if like I'm, of course, it can be misleading if 
I tend to think of God as just one more person like the rest of us. Totally. Right? Yeah. So it's, it's a natural way of speaking because we are not born talking about God. We're born and the first words that we learn are, you know, used to refer to created realities. So there's always mine, gonna be, mine was he with an uppercase H though. Mine was uh, that was first your first word. word. <laughs> You're the chosen one, if that's true. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, so the the language that we learn from our parents is used to refer to things. Yeah. So then when we start talking about God, we have in mind this metaphysical framework of referring to just one more thing. Mm-hmm. Of course, we don't have other language, so we have to use this language. But we just have to remember that when we talk about God, our language is partially inaccurate, right? Yeah. We talk about him as a he, but that doesn't mean that he is a male. Right. right? right. We talk about God as loving us, but that doesn't mean that he has emotions, or at least I'm going to say that doesn't mean that he has emotions. You know, like he he looks at me in particular and he feels all giddy inside because he loves me. That's I don't think that's what it means. Yeah. Uh, so our language is inaccurate. It can be misleading if we lean too much into it. We have to we have to proceed from the object and not from the mode of speaking. Right? Okay. We have to recognize that our mode of speaking is partly inaccurate, uh, but it's it's just more convenient to talk in this way. So we just yeah. talk this way. And then, you know, just remember to make the corrections when it's necessary. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into more, um, yeah, the philosophical theological language. Um, but real quick, I wanted to touch, I'm, I'm sure someone is thinking maybe the, the concept of God, if he's, if he's a necessary being, uh, does entail that he's worthy of worship being the highest, uh, or being the creator himself. Like, uh, have you, have you considered, Maybe maybe someone's argued this already, but that like the actual concept of God would entail his worthiness or, or his de- deserving of praise uh, philosophically. I I don't I simply don't sympathize with that. I don't see anything about it. Right, that demands. That, I think part of what it is is that people who are putting arguments like this are Christians, oh, yeah. and so the word God has you know worshipful connotations for them already. And yeah. so, you know, when they start describing God, because they love God, they just can't help but to worship him. But they don't recognize that it's not the concept of God that is moving them to worship. It's some other thing that they associate with the concept. But yeah, I would it's also the, say the Christian this. theology that, yeah. that's at play in your heart and your yeah. mind. Yeah, Exactly. I think it's like we, we have all these connotations with the word God in our mind. Uh, so anytime we talk about God, we're going to be inclined to worship him or we're going to find something wonderful about him. Uh, but I don't think it's the concept of God that makes us want to worship him. It's some other thing. It's what he's done for us, for example, in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. That's what makes us want to worship him. And he, if, had he never done that, I mean, just think about it. There are people in the Old Testament, or there are people even now who like believe in God, but they don't see anything. They don't have a sort of an impulse to worship him. Well, so, you know? I have, so in, in my head, I have a, um, um, a fun, fundamentalist and a modernist, and they're always fighting with each other. Yeah, and so yeah. I, I think of the fundamentalist saying, well, uh, you know, it's like uh, Captain America. And it's like, well, there's one God, ma'am. And, uh, you know, he doesn't dress like that or whatever. Yeah. Um, so insofar as non-Christians are thinking of God and they're not uh, drawn to worship, it's because they're suppressing the truth and their unrighteousness. It's not because there's a philosophical concept that they're actually, um, they do have accurate knowledge of. If they did have accurate knowledge of him, then they would be led to worship. Um it, so, I so think, let me ask that yeah. question. Okay, let me ask this Please. question. What is that accurate knowledge that moves to worship? Is it knowledge simply of God and himself, or is it a knowledge of God as he's related to you, or as you are related to him? That's that's a good point. So different different uh, intuitions about God are going to lead us to different places. So some people would say, I, you might say um, that God can't be known in his essence, right? But, but only by his actions. Correct. And so 
if that's the case, then if they don't have, well, you could know God through his actions in creation, right? Creation testifies to the glory of God. Yeah, um, and people do worship God, right? Yeah. So, like, you know, you had you had pre-Christian worshipers of God, so I don't deny that. But what I'm saying is that it's not the concept of God that moves into uh, worship. Mm, it's okay. the life experience. It's the recognition that this world comes from God and that yes. it's good. That's okay. what makes worship. I think that's really helpful. And I think the the the, the fundamentalists in my head will, will shut up because of that. Because when you're looking at creation, that is the Lebensvelt. That's you looking around and seeing the trees and seeing the animals and going, Oh wow. And, and that is different than just philosophical armchair reflection saying, Oh, there's this concept of this, this one being, and that's moving me to, to worship. That's good, man. I think you also have to be a certain sort of person. Okay. If you're like the Calaclean sophist, right. Whose principal goal in life is simply to get whatever he wants. That person will never worship. Hmm. So you also have to be the right sort of person. Here again, this is where phenomenology is useful. Yeah, you have to be a phenomenologist. You're saying, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. You, you, um, there is no such thing as just a pure experience, right? Every experience is from a certain point of view. Experience we, for me, right? It's an experience for me, yeah. and I also am. I experience myself, mm-hmm. even though I experience the world. I'm also simultaneously experiencing myself. So, for yeah. example, if I look over there the door to my apartment looks blurry. That's not because it is blurry. That's because my eyesight is bad. Mm -hmm. But I am also experiencing the door. So I am simultaneously experiencing the external object, the door, and also my body. So I'm experiencing myself and the the world at the same time. Uh, So that means that when somebody has an experience that moves them to worship God, they're not only experiencing God. They're also experiencing themselves. They find something you know, worship worthy about God because of the way they are, right? They're mm-hmm. a, let's say, a grateful person or a, a person who is likely to give thanks for things. Okay. Uh, so if you are already that kind of person, then in the right, ex- in the right conditions, you will worship God. If you are not that sort of person, you won't worship God, even in those conditions. Yeah. Yeah. You there's know? like a, a reflexiveness to experience that Brandon uh, Rickabaugh talked about this, which is so crazy to hear it in like deep, you know, philosophy of mind, but you're experiencing, but then there's this other arrow that that's directed back at you. Right. And um, I, Kant talked about like the I think, but it's even deeper than just like the thought. It's the experience. You're experiencing mm-hmm. like your experiences. Right, 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 yeah. right. Uh, okay. This is, you know, Michel Henry calls this uh, affectivity or self-affection where you feel yourself. Yeah. Right. So I'm, I'm like feeling myself as alive or as suffering or as joyful or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So just to, to emphasize the point, I mean, this Jesus says, for example, right, uh, if you, you know, whoever... Um, what does he say in the gospel according to John, where he says that whoever you know does the will of my father will know that what I'm saying is true or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sort of person that you are makes God uh, worship worthy or not, uh, makes God lovable or not, makes God um, uh, real or not to you. Right? If you are the sort of person who is likely to be thankful for things, then when the right conditions arise and when you realize that all the good things that you have in your life are from God, then you'll be thankful to God. Yeah. But if you're not the sort of person to be thankful, then you will never you know, give thanks to God. So it's the sort of person that you are also that you know, makes God worship worthy. Uh, yeah. There's no thing as you know, objective worship worthiness. It's just you either love God or you don't. So um, I, I resonate with that, but I, I do want to affirm like some kind of objective worthiness like and one of my friends is uh, here at TED's PhD student, super hardcore uh, into uh, Aquinas. And he was talking about his his view on simplicity and stuff like that. And so so God is like this fire 
And your relation to the fire determines how you experience that. So if you're cold and you're standing at a safe distance, this fire is really nice. If you're drunk or whatever and you step into the fire, it's going to burn you. So your relation, it's still a fire. It's always a fire. It's the same heat coming off. But your relation to it determines how you're experiencing that fire. Uh, What do you think? So then if that's the case, then God... It's, it's your relation. If you're, if you're like super against authority, then you're going to not really like God. If you had a really terrible experience with your father, the concept of, of God as father is not going to be really great for you. Right. Okay. Right. Well, just think about the fact there is no right way to relate to fire. (laughs) It depends on what you want, right? If you want to, if you want to cook hot dogs or, you know, make s'mores, then fire is great. If you want to, you know, remain the owner of a house, then fire is bad. Yeah. If you want to get warm, fire is great. If you want to stay cool, fire is bad. So there is no right way to relate to fire. There's simply the right way to relate depending on your interests. Um, well, how about how about um, like a, is there a telos in here? Like like the right way to relate to God because of our teleology, because we've been made in His image, He made us for the purpose of relation, and so there there so would this, be a right. This is, I think, the place to go. You would have to have some sort of like natural law, you know, approach to religion, right? You would have to show that certain forms of relating to God, conduce to human flourishing in ways that, uh, you know, you know, the failure to relate to God or other ways of relating to God do not. Okay. Um, and that would, I think, just that you just have to, there's no way to do that sort of thing academically. You just live a life. You either yeah. become a Christian or you don't, and then you see where it takes you. Um, and, you know, there's, there's no really like philosophical argument to give there, I think. There's just simply the experiment of your whole life. Okay. Um, uh, I would also say this. I remember at 2000, you know, in 2018 at the Los Angeles Theology Conference, Ian McFarland gave a lecture on theological anthropology, uh, and he made this interesting point that the meaningfulness of a life with God is something added onto human nature. It's not intrinsic to human nature, right? So for for McFarland, the he was proposing what I've called a non-theological. Uh, you know, anthropology, mm-hmm. where the human being is not by nature ordered to a relationship with God. The relationship to God is something that is given by grace. Uh, so it's the sort of super added gift, uh, but it doesn't, it's human beings naturally can just live life without religion or whatever and live an or- ordinary human life. Mm-hmm. Um, a religious life in which you're related to God is something added by grace. Uh, so a life with God is a gift that God gives us and he gives us simultaneously a capacity for this gift, but it doesn't belong to us by nature. It's simply a matter of grace. Okay. I can hear all my, um, all my reform friends going, no, but there's this covenant. Like you, you're in a covenantal relation and you're covenant breakers. And yeah. So um, this is, we got to talk about this at another one. Cause this is so good. Let's, let's jump into simplicity. Sorry for the abrupt uh, transition here, but uh, okay. um, what, what is the doctrine of uh, simplicity and just adding on that? Is it, merely an apophatic, a negative doctrine, or is it cataphatic? Is it a positive doctrine? Yeah, so as I said, in my interpretation, and this is going to be idiosyncratic, but I think that this is the best way of talking. In my interpretation, the doctrine of divine simplicity affirms that God is not an individual with qualities. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that would be the negative statement. A positive statement would be um, God is pure actuality. Okay, so that's my preferred form of of uh, stating the idea. But I think that these two ways of stating, I think of these two ways of stating, uh, maybe they, they have to go hand in hand, but I think that the negative formulation is more helpful Um, because the proponent of divine simplicity is going to say that God exists. He's not nothing. 
Uh, But he is going to say that he's not an individual with qualities. So it's a way of trying to isolate the notion of pure existence from uh, an existing individual. Mm -hmm. Right. So you you start with an existing individual, for example, my dog, um, you know, and then I take away the dog and I leave the pure existence without limits. And then that is something like what God is, uh, just pure being without limits um, and the basis for the being of everything contingent. Okay, and is that that pure being is does does that exist on a different level, or is it the is God's being the same qualitative being that your dog has? That's a good question. There's you know that's the the question of the doctrine of analogy, and I am not at all an expert on this. Okay. Um, so I'm. I can I can note various differences between my dog and God. For example, my dog exists as an individual thing, and God does not. Um, the existence of my dog is diverse, right? He has various properties. He's a mammal. Uh, he has two eyes. He has four legs. He has black fur or hair, rather, um, and so on. He's young, right? Yeah. He's a meat eater. He has all these properties. God does not have distinct properties, right? He's not an individual with qualities. Um, we can say that uh, my, you know, I was just reading this book by John Canassis called Thomistic Existentialism and uh, Cosmological Reasoning, which is an excellent book on the mm-hmm. doctrine of essay or being in Aquinas. Uh, we can say that my dog's existence is prior to it ontologically. So Thomas would say that, and Canassis is reading anyway, Thomas would say that the existence of my dog is an accident, uh, but it's not like the accident of the blackness of its fur. The blackness of its fur is posterior to the substance, right? There has to be yeah. something there in order to be black. Mm-hmm. Um, but the existence of the dog is not posterior. It's prior because without existence, there is nothing there. Okay. So the existence of the dog is a kind of a, um, an accident that precedes the substance and produces the substance. Uh, this, is, this is like uh, existentialism sounding here. Yeah, yeah. Only this all takes place at one point in time. It's not. Okay. It's not. You know, like you're born into the world, and you have to figure out your essence. This takes okay. place, you know, in one metaphysical moment, so to speak. Okay. Uh, the the existence is prior to the substance, uh, and it produces the substance. Um, and you might think that it has to somehow be directed at this substance in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then you can, you know, you can clearly see how we get a doctrine of creation from here, right? If the existence of the the particular substance is prior to it and produces it. Uh, then, you know, you see that the existence is sort of directed at this subject in, in yeah. a way, and then you get the notion of God as pure existence. Um, so God is pure existence. He does not have, he does not have the property of existing. For him, existence is not an, an accident, like in the right. case of my dog. Yeah. Um, he just is pure being. If he, uh, did, if, there, if he did exist in that way, or, or was an instantiation of existence, then there'd be like this higher category of existence, which is instantiated in God and instantiated in the dog and instantiated, instantiated in us. Right. So we don't want to say that. Yeah. And if he had a property of existence, well, Thomas Aquinas is going to say that that means that his his accident of existence would be prior to him, and then he would have to get it from somewhere. Mm-hmm. So God cannot be one more existing thing because then he'd need a cause. Yeah. Now, every existing thing has to be caused by something which just is pure existence. Yeah. Okay. So these are ways in which the existence of God is distinct from the existence of of um, the dog. Uh, God is purely actual, you know, the dog is at least partly potential, you know, it can get larger than it is now, it can, yeah. right now it's sleeping, it could be awake, etc. Yeah. So, uh, initially, it, it freaks me out a little bit, because I'm thinking, uh, I have, you know, Van Talen lives in here too, and uh, he always <laughs> wants to talk about analogy. So, 
it seems like since God's not an individual, but he is like being itself, then I have this being, uh, but I am an individual and I'm participating. If we're on the same level of being, then it seems like God is everything. Like mm-hmm. he's not an individual, but he's everywhere. And everything that, that exists is his being like it, it is yeah. him. And it, it seems like, you know, like uh, pantheism or, or like uh, panpsychism or something. So I would say that, okay, so Thomas says that God is not the formal being of everything. So God is not the property of existence that everything has. Mm-hmm. God is subsistent existence, mm-hmm. and everything else has the property of existence because of a relation to God. Okay. Uh, so God is like subsistent being, um, and then you have the substance with its own accident of existence, which is distinct from it and from God. Okay. So the existence that makes my dog exist is not God. Yeah. It's its own property of existence, but it comes from God. Yeah. So God is a subsistent existent, um, you know, just subsistent being. Uh, and then this dog has its own act of being, yeah. which is particular to it and by which it's distinct from, from God. So God is not just, you know, everything and neither is God just the existence that everything has. He is subsistent existence and everything else has its own act of existence because of God. Yeah. And I think, I think that important point kind of gets to the, the qualitative difference. Even if you want to say being is one level and we all exist on the same le- level, one of uh, one God's being is uh, uh, archetypal. It's original. Everything else is derivative, mm-hmm. um, yeah, synthetic, or whatever. However you want to say it, but I think that that's important. That gives us that qualitative difference in in being. Even if you want to say there's one level of of existence like that. Yeah, my own inclination is to say that from certain points of view, you know, we're the same, and from certain points of view, we're not. So yeah. I. Um, Here's one way in which we're not. God is pure actuality, whereas my dog, considered in itself, is a possible being, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, considered in itself, my dog is a possible being, which becomes actual once God grants its, its own act of being or mm-hmm. its own, you know, actuality. Uh, but the dog by itself is not an actual thing. It's just yeah. a possible thing. It's a possible participant in, in actuality, whereas God is purely actual with no possibility whatsoever, with no potentiality. So I would say that, you know, depending on the angle that you take here, again, the phenomenology, depending on the angle that you take, God can be the same as us or God can be different from us, radically different even, or analogous to us. So, it, I, you know, I'm not committed to one particular position. I think that just depending on where you start or what angle, you, what angle you're looking at it from, you'll come up with a different way of describing the relation between God and beings. Yeah, that's. I think that's helpful. It's, it's like the the use use of like perspectives is is really important. It, what qua what? What are we talking about here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. So, um, why why is this an important doctrine to to hang on to? Why is simplicity so important? I mean, you you put it like in theological triage earlier. You talked about how it's like foundational, right? To uh, classical theism. Why? Why not just all these philosophers telling me, just drop it, man, let it go. It's okay. Why should I not let go of simplicity? Well, the best reason not to let go of anything is because it's true. Uh, Mm. So I I think one reason why you shouldn't let go of divine simplicity is because it's true. Mm. Um, I would say that simplicity, I mean, every other value that simplicity has, you know, like it prevents us from, you know, I creating idols or, you know, idolatrous images of God or taking knowledge of God for granted, or uh, it allows us to synthesize various statements in the Bible about God's absoluteness and his uniqueness and his fundamentality or whatever. All these other values ultimately 
converge on this point because it's true. That's just what it is. Yeah. Um, so to my mind, that's the one reason why you should accept the doctrine of divine simplicity because that's how God actually is. Yeah. Okay. So what, what theological lifting does it do for us? How, how does it, um, so it, it's true. And if it's true, then we need to believe it. Um, but, but maybe even like pragmatically speaking, like um, if it's true, it should be interacting with the rest of our theology in a, in a, beneficial way to make sense rather than be this, you know, thorn in our side. How does simplicity help with Christian theology? Well, I will give two ways of helping. Um, one of them is in the matter of theological epistemology. Well, actually, they both have to do with theological epistemology, and they both have to do with the incarnation. Okay. So here's, here's what I would say. In the first place, divine simplicity is important because it makes it clear that philosophically we don't know what God is. Mm. Okay, and precisely because we don't know what God is, he has to really reveal himself. So the absolute unknowability of God prior to special revelation is what makes special revelation so important. Uh, and Thomas Aquinas gives this argument in the very first question in the first book, in the first article of the Summa Theologica. He says, um, you know, is revelation necessary? Is sacred doctrine necessary beyond philosophy? And he says, yes, because philosophically we don't know what God is, uh, but our life you know, is or ordered towards God. We have to know God for a good life. And so therefore there are some things about God that has to reveal to us. Mm-hmm. Um, precisely because we simply do not know what God is philosophically, for that reason, special revelation, the incarnation, I'm talking about the incarnation here, the incarnation becomes all the more important. You know, you have contemporary theologians like Torrance and Bard, who are some of my favorites, who emphasize the incarnation as the sort of the principal lens through which to think about God. And I'm entirely on board with that. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, they are also critical of natural theology. But I think that natural theology understood in my own, you know, idiosyncratic way helps their case precisely because apart from Christ, I simply don't know what God is or what to say about him or how to relate to him. That's why Christ is all the more useful. Christ actually gives me language to speak about God. He gives me uh, ways of thinking and of relating to God so that I can go beyond the apophatic darkness of, you know, the philosophical theology and actually relate to God in more concrete and, and uh, intentional ways. Yeah. And here's a second point. Uh, once more, continuing in the same line of thought as Torrance and Barth, precisely because God is absolutely simple and he cannot be otherwise than he is, not even across possible worlds, in absolutely no way whatsoever, for that reason, the way Christ is, that's how God is. Mm-hmm. Right? For for Barth, there's this worry about the God behind God, right? If 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 God's act is not his being, then, you know, perhaps he comes into the world as Christ and he puts on a show, but behind the scenes, he's really something else. Yeah. Divine simplicity says, no, that isn't literally impossible for God. He cannot be otherwise than he is. And so when he incarnates, the way he is in Christ is the way he is. Yeah. And it's the way he has always been, and it's the way he is necessarily. So if Christ comes into the world and he shows us that God loves us, then God hating us is not even a logical possibility. He mm. cannot be otherwise than that. God loves us. This is the absolute truth about God. Um, and the doctrine of divine simplicity, first of all, makes the incarnation important. And in the second place, you know, really solidifies what we learn in the incarnation so that there is no other way of talking about God except for this. Uh, so this is why I think the doctrine of divine simplicity is so important for Christian theology, because it makes the incarnation important and it makes the incarnation absolutely central. Yeah, that's helpful. So initially, uh, yeah, I used to have this debate back and forth with a, with a Bardian friend at here at Ted's in, uh, in Dr. Akati's analytic theology course. Uh, now he's at the, the Lagos Institute, but, um, or it, where, where's, where's Crispa? It's Lagos. Is it called Institute? I always forget. 
over there in... I don't uh, know what it's called, but it's at St. Andrews. Okay, St. Andrews. Yeah, he's at St. Andrews with with uh, studying there. So he would talk about... Um, I think you, you might be... Um, partial to this too like uh, incarnation anyways that you know um in in every possible world christ is coming to incarnate because he incarnated in this one and because god is simple because god um he's consistent so like the son would always come it was always the yeah. second person of the trinity and in a different possible world where man didn't fall he's still incarnating uh is, is that incarnation anyways i didn't get to that that point in in Chris's book but um so the- as far as I understand, incarnation anyway is the idea that even if human beings had not sinned, Christ would still have come into the world. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that that's the view that necessarily Christ comes into the world, because then that means that creation is necessary. Yeah, and that's, that gets us right to, to modal collapse, right? Yeah, I would not say that Christ comes into the world necessarily. Uh, I would simply say that I would take a sort of a soft in, you know, incarnation anyway view, and I would say that could Christ have come into the world even if human beings had not sinned? Yeah, why not? Yeah, uh, but I don't think that Christ comes into the world necessarily because I don't think that there is a world necessarily. God okay. might not have created. Like a contingent necessity, though. Once creation is created, he. No, I wouldn't even say that. It's just oh, that okay. he could. You know, I don't think that God has to incarnate, but he could incarnate even apart from sin, right? So it's it's just a contingency. I wouldn't say that if he does make a world, then he has to incarnate. I wouldn't say that. Okay. Yeah, I've heard some Bardians go that route, and and they're pretty hardcore because they want to go. They want to be, they want to emphasize the incarnation in all of their theology, right? And and yeah. I, I like, I mean, that's what God did. He he revealed Himself in Christ. That's huge, but yeah, in doing so, they've made it a necessity that He would incarnate in every possible world. And I think that falls brings us to like this modal collapse. And God's not free then to incarnate. He must incarnate. It's like an emanation yeah. that He sneezed. Like He yeah, had yeah, to yeah. do it. Yeah. Yeah, um, I wouldn't say that. I okay. I don't think that any. I'm, I'm open to being convinced otherwise, but I don't think that anything about the incarnation, as we know about it in Scripture, demands that God have incarnate always. Incarnated always. Uh, I think that if human beings sin, He could incarnate, or He might not. If human beings don't sin, He could incarnate, or He might not. Uh, and He might not create human beings at all. He might not create any world at all. So you know, I'm open to a lot of things. Yeah. Well, so so getting getting on to to modal collapse then. Um, if God is simple, then it seems like he's his incarnation didn't isn't in relation to our sin because then he is uh he's um reacting to something reacting exactly yeah I was trying to think of the theology. well he has passions or something right yeah he's, yeah 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 he's affected by things mm-hmm. so wh- I mean what do you make of that yeah I would okay so the the doctrine of divine simplicity as i understand it says that god or entails that god is not within time mm-hmm. uh he doesn't go back and forth in time like us he doesn't have a, fa- a past or a future or anything like that uh furthermore it means that he doesn't change he doesn't go from being one way to being another way not even across possible worlds he is always exactly the same in, in every single possible world um and it also means that he is not affected by anything nothing affects him he doesn't mm-hmm. respond to things he is not on the receiving end of any kind of causal relation he just is purely actual. Everything is from him, but nothing is, you know, at him. <laughs> you know, no, he, he he is not affected by anything. Yeah. Um, and so some people think that this entails a modal collapse. For example, they'll think that, okay, well, God made this world. You know, that's the first premise. Uh, furthermore, he made this world in virtue of what he is like. 
mm-hmm. uh, because that's how all causation operates. You know, you cause in virtue of the way that you are. Um, and if God could not be otherwise than the way that he is in this world, mm-hmm. then that means that he could not fail to make this world. Right. And so this world is just as necessary as him. Uh, that's a sort of a basic, you know, formula, formulation of the modal collapse argument. Yeah, the, the necessity collapses down and then everything in creation is necessary, including me picking up this mug right now. Like, right. Or incarnating or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the, that's one of the more popular arguments against, um, uh, divine simplicity. Um, but I think, I don't think that it's a good argument and I think that there's a way out of it and the way out of it is, to deny what I have called the difference principle. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think that this argument presupposes a certain principle of causality, which it is open to the classical theist to deny. Yeah. Uh, the difference principle is this, you know, this, prin- this uh, principle of causality goes like this. It says that a possible difference in effect requires a possible difference in cause. Uh, and I gave the example of, you know, going and turning on my car. Every day when I go home or every day when I, when I go to work, I open my car, I put the key in, I turn the key, and then the engine turns on, okay? Um, And there's this causal mechanism that takes place that explains why it is that turning the key, you know, will turn on the engine of the car. Well, suppose one day I turn the key and nothing happens, okay? This is a difference in effect. My my, The one in the same activity has uh, led to a different effect this time than previously. And so we naturally think that something must be different in the cause to account for this difference in effect. There's got to be something different about that entire mechanism that goes from turning the key to igniting the engine. There's got to be something different there to account for the fact that the effect is different. Yeah. So this difference principle is very plausible, right? A possible difference in effect demands a possible difference in the cause. If the cause is always the same, then the effect is always going to be the same. Uh, but I think that the, the, and, and the modal collapse argument presupposes this principle, right? The only way that you can go from saying that God causes the world in virtue of the way he is to, you know, therefore the world could not be other than what it is, uh, is by saying that if the world were to be different, that means that God would have to be different. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the only way you can get that inference. Uh, but if you deny that, then there's a problem. God causes the world in virtue of the way that he is, but a different world might have been caused, God remaining unchanged, or no world at all. Once more, God remaining unchanged. So if you deny that the cause has to be different for the effect to be different, then you can escape the modal collapse uh, argument for, you know, against divine simplicity. Yeah. So with the car analogy, um, you're, you're turning the, the key and the, the cause is still the same. You're turning the key, right? But, but something, something's wrong in the engine and so it's not starting. Right. So when I talk about the cause, I would say that like the whole process, that's the cause, right? So Including the, the ignition and the... Right. Yeah. Okay. Everything that begins with turning the key and then ends with the engine turning on, right? Everything included in that, whatever physical... I don't know much about cars, but whatever <laughs> physical processes take place, yeah. that's the cause, right? Yeah. So something has to be different there in order to account for the difference in effect, namely mm-hmm. that the car doesn't turn on. Yeah. So that's that's what I'm suggesting. And... That's the principle. Okay, and you deny that uh, with God and creation, but so if if the world were to be different, then what would make it different if it's not God's decision? You mm-hmm. know, like because then it, it seems like well, yeah, this would be the only possible world if God's not changing. Then how could He ever create a world that's different if nothing in, inside of God changes? Yeah, well, this is mysterious, but I would say that the relationship between God and the whole of created reality, let's just call that the world, mm-hmm. um, is indeterministic. So okay. I think that indeterministic causation is precisely causation that does not obey the difference principle. Uh, and you can look at examples of 
uh, for example, like in, in the debates about free will, you know, libertarians will posit lib uh, indeterminism as a condition of free will. Uh -huh. Now, what is indeterminism except the view that, you know, you pause the tape of the world at a certain point in time and everything here can remain exactly the same, but what follows could be different. Mm -hmm. right? something, something might follow, but something else might follow. Uh, so also, right? It's like, you you know, suppose you believe that God creates the world in virtue of some sort of intention that he has. He makes a choice to create this world rather than another one. Um, even there, you have to deny the difference principle. You know, what what is what has to be different about God before making a choice uh, in order to account for the fact that he makes this choice in this world, but a different choice in a different world? Um, even there, you have something that remains unchanged about God, whatever his essence is, for example, that is the same in every possible world. Um, and then in some possible world, he chooses to create this cosmos. In another possible world, he chooses to create another cosmos. But there you have a denial of the difference principle because there is nothing prior to the choice that accounts for, you know, that accounts for it. Well, but aren't we, then we're sneaking like indeterminism into God, right? Is that right? But what I'm saying is that either the indeterminism is in God or the indeterminism is outside of God, but there's still a denial of the difference principle. Well, so if God creates, um, in a compatibilist way, if he if he acts on his desires to create and creates with the intention for this conversation to happen, yeah, then w wouldn't that entail? Well, maybe so. So maybe we don't go with uh, that compatibilist view that God. It it just seems it seems weird to me. Like why why does God create if not for his desire to create? Here's a good. That's a good question. Um, so if God has a desire to create. Is that desire essential to him or is it contingent to him? Yeah, so that's that's a that's a really hard problem. I, I I have it later in our in our notes here, but so his desire to create if it's essential to him, does it necessarily translate into a choice to create or does it not? I don't I don't know. I don't know. Um again, this is I want to go with mystery, but let's stay here. So so uh, it, I think it could be essential without him acting on it, right? He could have this okay. essential desire without it emanating from him in like Plotinus's one kind of sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so God essentially desires to create, but he doesn't always create, not in every possible world, right? So he yeah. has an essential desire, but it doesn't always translate into action. Yes. Okay. So that means that you have two possible worlds, one where he creates, one where he doesn't. And then if, if he does create, there's mortal collapse in that world. Well, if you say that this, if you say that this desire translates into an action, then there's a modal collapse because it's essential. He will always have that desire, and so therefore he will always create. But but the create so his desire is to create, but not necessarily to create this exact world, but okay. but a a good world, not the best possible world, but a a good world, and a good world would entail some form of incarnation. Okay, so let's we can we can make the same argument. We're just okay. pushing it out a level. Okay. So he has the desire to create. That's essential. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then he has the contingent decision to make this world. Mm -hmm. Right. Let's say that he also could have had a contingent decision to make a different world. Right. So there's a contingent decision here, a contingent decision there, and the essential desire here. All right. The relation here has to be indeterministic. Mm -hmm. You have to deny the difference principle because this is not the this is not the yeah. different. This is the same. Mm -hmm. This is different. Right. Yeah. So in both possible worlds, this is the same. This is different. That means that this can be the same and this turned out differently. So that's a denial of the difference principle. So it doesn't matter. You always have to deny the difference principle to avoid modal collapse, whether yeah. you put the, you know, the, all the, all the fun, you know, stuff inside of God in his mind 
or you just push it straight outside of the world. That's not so bad, man. I, I'm glad we walked through that because that 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 helps. That's good. I'm glad you 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 showed me there with with my. That's I like it. I still have to think through it, but I I like that. I think that that's helpful. I wonder I wonder um, if simplicity is a problem for God's thoughts and God's desires. So God is is simple. He's not composite, uh, and yet. Would you say God has divine? There are divine thoughts. <laughs> um, my inclination is to say no. I think okay. that talking about divine thoughts is is misleading because it makes me think of God as like this big disembodied mind, right? Like a Cartesian uh, res cogitans mm-hmm. uh, that just happens to you know sit at the bottom of the ontological ladder, and everything else is based on. I don't think that's what God is. So I would not talk about God's thoughts theologically we talk about god's thoughts all the time you know i know the thoughts that i have for you thoughts Mm of prosperity prosperity and not destruction or whatever so theologically we talk about god's thoughts all the time but metaphysically can we talk about god having thoughts um not in any straightforward way because that would introduce composition into god um i think Mm -hmm. that when we take language like this that seems to introduce composition into god we either interpret it as a negation or else we interpret it as uh describing a way that created things relate to god Mm-hmm. So for example, you know, let's take this idea. Does God, you know, did God intend to incarnate? You know, that sounds like it's a thought. It's a, a, a mental thing in God's mind. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if we're talking literally about an intention in God's mind, no, divine simplicity says we cannot posit any such things mm-hmm. right? because then we would make a distinction between God, his, you know, his thoughts and then himself as the subject of his thoughts. Uh, but perhaps we can say that God intended always to incarnate. Um, you know, by somehow placing this property in the world, right? All the events of the world led up to the moment of Christ's incarnation, let's say, mm-hmm. right? So we can we can then add, because people, people typically think about the world as like just cause and effect, right? Physical right. cause and effect, and then like the meaning of thing is on top of this, you know, yeah. somehow. We yeah. don't have to say that. We can say that the meaning of the world not only is cause and effect, but also these other forms of meaning, Mm-hmm. You know, and we can say that God intended to incarnate in the sense that all the events in the history of the world led to the, you know, uh, were leading to the incarnation of Christ. Yeah. So, okay. Um, so basically, so let me to summarize. I would yeah. not say that God has thoughts if we mean that as a sort of an intrinsic, you know, predication of God. Okay. But I can't, I would say that we can interpret the language of God's thoughts as referring to the world and the way that the world is created by God or the way that it relates to God. But you're not an idealist, right? Or are you? Because then, like, if I'm, then we're just existing in God's mind, or like not in His mind, because that would negate simplicity. But like the whole world. Ah. So that's a, that's a good question, right? So can the classical theist say that the world just is the thoughts of God, right? Mm-hmm. All the history of the world is this process of thinking on God's part, like a thought that He thinks. Yeah, I think that's also a possibility. I don't think it's just that. It, it would be maybe a material thought or something like it's a thought that is out, but that would be outside of God unless we're panentheists, right? Yeah. I, I don't know that. I mean, I don't know that pantheism is off bounds for classical theism either. Okay. Um, so again, here I think it's just like we use different words to describe this, but like the substance is the same. Um, so I think it's open to the classical theist to talk about all of history as a thought of God's, right? Okay. So this entire, this entire possible world is God's thought. Um, I like saying like novel, like, cause I think that works well. It's like uh, 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 Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings is, is all his thought. 
Like yeah, that is yeah, his, yeah. Even though it is external to him, it's it's he's he's not alive anymore. But yet, I have his thoughts still in this book. I like what you say. The only problem that I have is that the thoughts were in his mind first, and then in the world. So, if yeah. thoughts are if thoughts are this is I asked James Anderson about this, and I think him and Welty say that thoughts are not like parts, but they're actions. And so, God, a simple God, uh, people who hold to simplicity believe that God can act uh, and and it not mess with, with um, not add composition to his being. And so if thoughts are actions, then likewise, it, there's no problem for simplicity. What do you think about that? I'm not inclined to say that God can act because I, I think, I think that when we talk about God acting, we really mean that something happens in the world because of him. Mm. But when we talk about acting, for example, if I play the piano, there are two steps involved. First, I move my body, and then I affect the piano, mm-hmm. right? So my action is first on me and then on the world. I act on myself in order to affect the world. But that can't be how God acts. God must simply d- affect the world directly. So when we talk about God actions, God's actions, we really mean that things are happening in the world because of God. We're not describing something that happens in him. Well, we're, so, we, yeah, I, I would agree. I, we don't want to say like univocally that God acts in the same manner that we do when we play the piano, but but analogically, could could we say that you know this category of of action God acts in a way that is not univocal but is literal he he literally acts just like we literally act but not in the same manner yeah so if yeah once more it's just it depends on you know your predilections <laughs> and your your sympathies i yeah. I think it's easier to talk in terms of a univocal denial than to talk in terms of an analogical affirmation. Okay. Um, because the univocal denial is clearer. When you make an analogical affirmation, you say that God acts, but in a different sense than we do. Um, that doesn't leave you with a lot of like meat to grasp. Like you, if you're not sure like what exactly is being said. Whereas if I just say no, God does not act because He does not, you know, first act upon Himself and then affect an outside reality. That, that, that it's a lot clearer what I'm saying. Yeah, but I have a preference for the univocal denial, but I think that okay. you can go both ways. Okay. Well, in the univocal denial, it seems like we're we might be we might be accidentally denying some some biblical phenomena, like him writing on the wall, or like it, wouldn't the incarnation be an action of God, or or is it not? Well, it is an action of God in the sense that it's something that takes place in the world because of God. Mm-hmm. But it is not an action of God in the sense that he does not first affect himself in order to affect an outside reality. Right. So so I, I think that works with analogical predication because it, we're saying though man has to act on himself before he can act, God God's action is literal, but it's not univocal in that God doesn't act on himself before he acts. Yeah, he just directly produces an external yeah. reality. Yeah. yeah, at the end of the day, we're saying the same thing. Okay, okay. You know, some people, I think, have a preference for more positive and, you know, affirmative language, and some people prefer to, you know, dwell on the negative. So yeah, speak. I got Van Til and Frame and that whole school just living in just, analogy, dude, go with analogy. <laughs> it's just living deep in there. Um, so do you have a, a couple more minutes to, to keep yeah, going here? Go okay, ahead, cool. Um, have we sufficiently talked about modal collapse? Is there anything more? I, I mean, I get so excited about the other stuff, but is there anything else you want to add and kind of re- trying to refute this? Um, yeah, problem. Yeah, so I, I, I think the, I think that uh, we touched on the essence of things. Okay. Basically, the, the, the fundamental premise and the, or the assumed premise of the modal collapse argument is the difference principle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's open to the classical theist to deny the difference principle, 
Uh, furthermore, anybody who wants to avoid uh, modal collapse has to deny the difference principle, because even if you're not a classical theist, even if you think that God has these like contingent desires and intentions to create and so on, you still have to deny the difference principle when it comes to the relation between whatever is necessary and whatever is contingent. Yeah. Right. The denial of the dif- difference principle is fundamentally a way of understanding the relationship between necessity and contingency. And it's not something particular or peculiar to classical theists. Yeah. Um, so that would be the third thing. Uh, and the fourth thing that I would say, this is something that I bring up also in my paper that you read. Um, mm-hmm. When God creates, he does not first and foremost create an individual object. He creates the whole possible world. Yeah. So I consider that God's creative action is aimed at, aimed at, uh, it produces an entire possible world, uh, first and foremost, and me second only secondarily, right? So yeah. you and I are having this conversation, not because God is causing you and me to exist directly right now, but because he actualized this world in which we do this. So that would be the final thing that I say. When God creates, he does not create first and foremost an object, a thing. He creates an entire possible world yeah. at, which, you know, at all times. So th- this is um, infralapsarianism? Is that is that your position? Or I mean, it doesn't really have to do with sin, I guess, but... but... Is, it would be that kind of that God creates the world first in the logical order rather than individuals and then creates the world to populate or to, to be the playground for these uh, persons. So I, I don't really have a committed position on that whole infrasupra debate. But okay. if that if that if what I'm saying now, you know, coheres better with the infralapsarian position, then perhaps that's what I hold. I don't know. OK. Um, yeah, that that's that's interesting. I like that. So it's like this. Singular act. God didn't. Does this make us? Um, does this commit us to like a allegorical or like a non-literal interpretation of the seven days of creation in Genesis? Because no, it, maybe you know, maybe those are true. Maybe that's the way it actually happened. But my well, point: so, is God yeah. did not. You know, so. I Do you see I, why I would think that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So you're saying, okay, well, Genesis says, okay, let's first let's create light and dark, then let's create the sun, then let's yeah. create the earth, then let's create all. This. So Genesis presents him sort of creating individual things. Even, I, even I, if it wasn't literal, even if it wasn't literal seven days, you know, if you're old yeah. Earth, then you still it it would seem. I think old Earth folks would still want to say that even more so, right? There's this long periods where he's, right. yeah, okay. So yeah, so Genesis presents him as going from object to object, right? First, right. let's do this. Let's yeah. do this. Whereas I'm suggesting, no, he just creates everything, all time, all history at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now I understand what you mean. Yes, um, it, it. my position would entail a sort of an allegorical interpretation of Genesis from this point of view of God's creating an entire world rather than object and then proceeding to another object and then proceeding to another object. Okay. That's, that's true. Okay. So, so another objection from the fundamentalist who lives in my head would be, this sounds a little bit like um, ideism. Maybe he, he, he started the process, but he's not... He's not. He's not actively working in the world to bring about his desired ends. I think here it depends on your philosophy of time. Okay. Um, so my inclination is to say that when God creates the whole possible world, He creates all times. Ooh, this is so, good. Yeah. yeah. So my inclination is to say that all time exists. Yeah. Uh, because God is causing it timelessly. Yeah, uh, that would be my way. So I'm not saying that like God creates the world and then it just sort of runs on its own, right? Yeah, uh, God creates all time, the whole thing, the whole, right, the whole yeah. Talk. yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So that definitely gets you out of deism. Um, that's good. I, I didn't think about that. Yeah, that's really helpful. So the whole thing exists right now. Um, so s- Jesus is like still on the cross, though, right? 
<laughs> well, he's at the cross then. He's not on the cross now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because if I said now, I'm I'm imposing a I'm I'm imposing like God's time or whatever. But but in God's moment, I guess. But it, if it's like a novel, that's not that big a deal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, good, like, from God's point of view, for example, Christ is crucified. You know, uh, nineteen, you know, one thousand nine hundred seventy years ago, or something, or whatever it might be. Uh, but also from His point of view, He is also on the throne of the entire world in the kingdom, right? So, uh, every point of every moment in time is equally present to God. Uh, you know, so. And, Christ and this, right then, but he's not crucified now. And this includes like I, I never hear this talked about. I don't talk about it either. But this would include like the eschaton as well, right? Yeah, yeah. The eschaton would be equally real to God. Everything eternal into the future, Correct. or not eternal, but te- everlastingly, all of it into the future exists. Correct. Okay, okay, that's interesting. So, um, how about the doctrine of the Trinity? Uh, so I came into this. Uh, discussion. And I thought, you know, simplicity is this kind of old doctrine because I grew up evangelifish and didn't know about it and stuff. But, and then I, I would listen to like Swinburne or I'd, I'd read their books and stuff. Um, the the non-classical theists and they're saying, you know, simplicity is a problem for the Trinity. And then I get to uh, Dr. Tom McCall's class on the Trinity and he's showing how, you know, church throughout, throughout church history, They've used simplicity in order in order to bolster the Trinity, right. and they did not find it as a problem. Um, can you explain, like, why would someone think that simplicity and the Trinity doctrine are at odds, and then help us think why they're not? Well, you might think that they're at odds because the doctrine of the Trinity talks about a difference between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, and the doctrine of divine simplicity seems to talk about God such that there can be no internal differences to him. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You might think like, okay, the divine simplicity and the doctrine of the Trinity, these are problems. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, it's not without reason that, for example, Arius and these guys thought that the doctrine, you know, Christ could not be consubstantial with the Father because like, obviously the Father is simple and there's no such thing as consubstantiality among a simple principle. Whoever heard of such a thing? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you had, you know, the Nicenes who were positing the consubstantiality of Father and Son while not giving up the doctrine of divine simplicity. This is the essential point. So the, everybody took it for granted, obviously, that God is simple. Yeah. You know, Lord, bring the days where people can think like this again. Obviously, mm-hmm. God is simple. I, you know, I pray that we return to such times as those. Yeah. Um, but they said, listen, although obviously God is simple, nevertheless, this is the way Christ's revelation demands that we talk. Mm-hmm. Right? Christ demands that we talk about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, so he said, we can't simply give up on what Christ teaches us just because it leads us into these philosophical problems. And so they basically, you know, in my interpretation, and I think if you read like uh, Lewis Ayers or Khaled Anatolios on these topics, they'll say like, obviously, all these guys accepted the doctrine of divine simplicity. They thought that the divine simplicity was essential to preventing tritheism. The Greeks, uh, yeah. Right, because if God... Uh, if God was not absolutely simple, then you would have three gods. You would have three, just like in Swinburne, just like in, you know, like some of these other uh, social Trinitarians, you have three individuals that equally exemplify the divine nature. That's tritheism. Um, And they did not want to do that. Uh, So, you know, they will say God is absolutely simple. And yet somehow there is within God, this distinction between father, son, and Holy spirit. And this is something that we could only know because of Christ. And incidentally, I actually write about this in my, my response to, Crisp's book, Analyzing Doctrine, that we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Yeah. Um, 
the way so crisp uh, the way that i talk about it it's like this i say from the point of view of the contingent reality uh god is absolutely simple mm-hmm. okay so i'm sort of imposing a perspective uh, a sort of a phenomenological perspectivalism here sure. from the point of view of the created reality god is absolutely simple mm-hmm. but from the point of view of christ he is father son and holy spirit so christ offers a window into god that the created reality as such does not Mm -hmm. starting from the created reality i reach the conclusion of an absolutely simple first principle Um, if i start with christ in the way that he talks then i reach the conclusion that god is father son and holy spirit now how these work together i don't exactly know but they're both visions of god right for example i can see out my window and i can see the building as it's visible from here and then i can go down you know because i live on the third floor of this apartment building i can go down to the bottom and then i can see the building from a different angle Mm -hmm. i'm seeing the same building it's just from different angles it looks different so Likewise, from the point of view of created reality, God looks like an absolutely simple first principle. And then from the point of view of Christ, God looks like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, I am seeing the same thing in both cases. I'm seeing God, uh, but it's just that Christ offers a unique perspective into the life of God that created reality does not. Yeah. Okay. I I like that. That's good. So um, does simplicity, um, does it make us uh, affirm would we would we say God's simplicity is more fundamental than God's triunity or his his threeness? The threeness oneness problem, right? Is is oneness more uh, foundational on on a, a, a theology that holds to simplicity? Well, I think it would be um, I think it would be strictly speaking heretical to say that because then you would have the persons above, right. you know, the nature. The persons yeah. would be like this emergent thing out of the nature. Right. Whereas if you read, for example, Gregory uh, or some of these other guys, they'll say, no, God subsists. The, the absolutely simple nature of God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah. Uh, there is no God and then the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on top of that. There is simply mm-hmm. one level, God and Father, Son, Holy Spirit as the, at the same level. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think that you should say that the nature is more fundamental than the person's. You should just say that this absolutely simple divine nature subsists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen, dude. So that's... That's so helpful. And again, that's, that's in my mind, that's Van Til, that's Bavink talking about, you know, absolute personality that, that God is absolute personality, that that's, that's what's up. There's, there's a, his oneness and his threeness are uh, equal. They're equally ultimate. The threeness is not uh, more foundational. And that's where I think you get into yeah, like tritheism or, or something like that, where you're you're overemphasizing the threeness to the right. detriment of its oneness, and then you know vice versa. You get um, modalism, right? If you're, if you're going with oneness over his threeness, and then he's wearing different masks and stuff. Right, exactly. It, Orthodox trinitarianism means the refusal to privilege the oneness or the threeness. Yeah, but then again, that exact thing is incomprehensible. Who can understand that? Yeah. Who can understand that the one is the three? So. Mm-hmm. That's why I think at the end of the day, we have to say that the doctrine of the Trinity is a mystery. We are confronted in Christ with a mysterious God. Yeah. Don't know what he is, right? Once more, the doctrine of we don't know what God is. We cannot simply like take him, you know, from his heights and force him into some like created analogy or some created yeah. categories. We cannot do that. We will distort what he is. Yeah. We have to sit face to face with something that we cannot understand. That's yeah. what God is. And that's uh, another thing. So I learned this from James Anderson. I think it's so helpful. It's like we... And and he he's not uh, original to him, but he he made it uh, he put it in analytic form that uh, because of 
because of who God is, it makes sense. So it's not, we're not punting on into mystery and saying, oh, I'm done thinking about it. But no, it actually conceptually makes sense that we wouldn't be able to understand him unless we were him. And so it makes sense that we can't fully comprehend him because he is creator. He exists in one being and three persons. Well, would, not one being, I guess, for you, right? Would, would you say he's one how do you how do you talk about his oneness? Well, I would say he is uh, one in substance and three in persons. So one, one substance, in, one, three. one in nature, three in person. Yeah, and, and we are one in nature, one in person. Correct. And yeah. so for us, this this unitary being trying to figure out the the triune God, it's, yeah. it's, we're not going to fully comprehend, it, and that's okay. And that's actually a Christian doctrine. That's a good thing to right. affirm. Yeah, yeah that, there, you know, I think it's good now and again to be confronted with the mysteriousness of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I was just thinking about it because we went yesterday to buy the puppy and the puppy didn't have a name before we bought it. Right. Yeah. So I was thinking how strange it felt, phenomenologically, how strange it felt to have something in front of you that doesn't have a name. Mm-hmm. Now, we do this all the time. There are all kinds of, there, you know, every corner of my house, no, no, no corner of my house has a name. No particular piece of the carpet has a name. So I don't think about it. But it also doesn't mean anything to me. It's just... <laughs> something in the environment. Once you give something a name, it becomes intimate. It, yeah. it feels different to relate to something that has a name. Yeah. Um, but the problem is that by giving something a name, we sort of make it familiar, right? And we have, we, we suffer the illusion that we've like managed to grasp the entire thing and it's all visible to us. Yeah. We can define it. We can define it by its limitations and now we have it. It's, it's yeah, ours. The whole grasp. Yeah. Exactly. It's important now and again to realize that we don't actually know this. <laughs> we don't actually know what things are. Uh, things elude our grasp. Even if we have a name to refer to them by, things elude our grasp, and there's so much about them that we don't know. And I think it's important also to remember that in God, we do not know what God is. Mm-hmm. This is so important. So I, I recently finished translating a book by the philosopher Richard Carney, a book called Anatheism, mm-hmm. uh, Returning to God After God. I translated it into Romanian for a publisher in Romania. Um, and he makes this point that it's important to have this experience of like expropriation and, and sort of bewilderment where you no longer understand what this thing is because then you're actually truly seeing it previously. You know, we talk about things, but you know, we're actually talking about our concepts most of the time and not the things themselves, right? We have to have this moment, this experience where we're sort of bewildered and like the concept is erased and we're just confronted with this thing that we don't know how to make sense of. Then actually we're seeing the thing. When we see it as unfamiliar, then we're seeing what it is in a, in a really profound way. And it's extremely important to have that with God, because if we assume that we know what God is and what he wants, then we'll become extremists. Yeah. You know, our enemies will become God's enemies. Um, You know, our points of view become God's point of view because he just becomes like one of us, right? We have to allow God to be free of our understanding so that we don't form an idol out of him and so that we don't appropriate him for our purposes. Uh, You know, he might not in fact be on our side. I feel like there has to be a phenomenological name for that, like shock of re realizing. Is there a name? Do you, do you have one for it? So Carney uses different terms, but I, I can't remember them now. Okay. I would have to check the book. I don't remember. Every now and then I do that with God. And I think, um, I think about like, yeah, yeah, I have this concept and usually it's that God is huge that he's just like this yeah. really big being. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and I go like, well, why would I think that? And I go through this process and go, well, what if he's exactly the same size as me? And, <laughs> and, and then I think like, there is no, like he doesn't exist in the way I exist, but he can, in, he can incarnate like, uh, like he did in the, f- in the furnace or like he did if, if he, if it was a theophany for him to walk in the garden, like yeah. he was our size. And that terrifies me way more than like a giant God. 
Cause I'm like, okay, the giant being this big hand, that makes sense. I've thought about that a lot, but if he's just like here and he's like Parker and says my name, like that terrifies me. It's horrifying. Yeah. And yeah. I love God, but that brings like this fear and awe of like the other, like here's yeah, this yeah. uncreated being. And I think of it as, as an old man and it's like, stop doing that because he is younger than you. Right. Cause he's, there's no age kind of thing going on here. I, he stays here and I get older. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I'm yeah. old man, but I'm talking to him, and he's still eternally like youthful, whatever. If if yeah. we can even say that, right? But it freaks me out, man, and it's really helpful for me to get that kind of shock and think about like the awe and wonder of. I'm still using categories of of age and time, which are yeah. not appropriate, you know, to God, but to to help me think and like smash my other categories. Right, right. And, I think yeah, it's so cool. What you're talking about is exactly right, and um, Jean Luc Marion has a a chapter at the end of his book in excess where he talks about negative theology uh, and he quotes from church father after church father and figure after figure uh, where they say that knowledge of God is precisely ignorance of God. Hmm. Once you like manage to like, you know, free yourself from the grip of a, a conceptual idol and some understanding of God, once you realize that actually the way you understand, understand God is not adequate to him hmm. and you're left in this state of, you know, like, I don't know what God is. That's when you know God. Mm. Uh, so it's it's that uncomfortable like bewilderment, that uncomfortable conf, you know confusion and lack of knowledge that is actually the true knowledge of God uh, for these people. Once you simply don't know what God is, yeah, then you actually have like come face to face with Him, so to speak. Yeah, I, I think that's that's so good, and and I really like that. So when we're smashing our concepts of God, though, we can still can we still affirm that like He's good and that He loves me and like, because those are still part of the concept, right? Well, you know, what's interesting is that destroying these can concepts, this is like a, a sort of a phenomenological work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in phenomenology, there's a method. It's called the bracketing. In order to do phenomenology, you have to set aside, you have to bracket your prior assumptions about the thing in question and yeah. simply attend to it and experience. And what you find is that your prior assumptions were not totally wrong, but they're refined. You know, you learn to rethink them by consulting the, you know, the experience of the object and setting aside your assumptions. So I think, for example, when we when we smash these conceptual idols of ours and we, you know, learn to rethink God, we'll come to more or less the same way of talking about God, but we'll sort of understand this way of talking with a greater refinement. Um, so, for example, when we talk about the goodness of God, um, you know, I think that in light of the doctrine of divine simplicity, God's goodness means that he causes things that are good for us. Mm -hmm. When I say, for example, that God loves me, I don't mean that God, you know, has these feelings of giddiness and he just like really enjoys being around me or whatever. Um, I think that what it means is that he um, causes things that are for my good. So the love of God is a way that created realities uh, are related to him or and to me, right? They're, they are for my good. That's why, and he's their cause. That's why he loves me. Uh, so I would think that like this, this task of conceptual, you know, idol smashing or iconoclasm, whatever you want to call it, yeah, yeah, it's good. Uh, conceptual iconoclasm, it's useful because it helps us to think more accurately about God. Uh, but it's always a, a work in progress, right? Maybe like in the future, I will come to refine my understandings because I never come at a final answer. As long as I'm in life, I could always improve the way I think about things. I could always come to a different conclusion. I can always adopt a new angle at things from which new things are visible for me. And, you know, so it's, it's never a complete work that yeah. I'm always, you know, in via, so to speak. 
Yeah, that's good. When I first wanted to start reading uh, Husserl, I saw that he talked about presuppositions a lot, and I was very deep into Van Til, and I thought, let's go. Then I saw him saying, like, we need a presupposition less, like, we need to bracket this. And I said, well, I'm done with this. And so now I'm kind of coming full circle, and I'm going back and thinking, like, I, I just, I think the way you explained it is really helpful, and that's what I already do anyways, where I'm, I'm bracketing out my conceptions, my assumptions, my presuppositions about God, and then saying, like, what? Who is he? You know, who and, and 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 not just just running with these these conceptions. And I think a lot of us do that, right? We have this idea of God, and then we go to war because you your conceptions uh, are different than mine, and your mine are right and yours are wrong, and I'm going to destroy you if you try to smash my conceptions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. Yeah, this is the difficulty. And, you know, this is what I write about in my um, dissertation. In the final chapter of my dissertation, I talk about the possibility of theology without anathemas. Mm. Uh, this is a, a really striking issue. You know, yeah. my more conservative friends will not like this. And then my more liberal friends will be like, yeah, even though I don't agree with them on anything. <laughs> and I yeah. still think they're deadly wrong, even though I don't want to do an, a theology with anathemas. Why do theology without anathemas? Because, like I was saying earlier, we cannot come to final answers. You know, we cannot come to an infallible theological knowledge. And this is what I argue for in my dissertation. And so that's why we don't have theology with it. That's why we have theology without anathemas, because I cannot ever say this is it. This is the final, you know, the final uh, statement of this doctrine. Um, now, even though I admit this as a theoretical possibility, I am actually not inclined at all to move beyond the, you know, the ecumenical statements about the incarnation and the Trinity, for example. Yeah. But as a matter of theoretical necessity, I say, no, even those statements are not in principle final, even though personally, in terms of my own temperament, I would not like to go beyond them. Um, so I think that theology without anathemas is important. And theology without anathemas is what prevents me from going to war with you because you have a different conception of God. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I admit that I can be wrong about God, just as you admit that you can be wrong about God. And so we work together instead of fighting each other. So, yeah, the fundamentalist just got mad again. So, um, <laughs> so... Does this? How does this in, impact like our our pers- our view of the perspicuity of Scripture? Like God, God gave us a sure word, and in, but but we still have to like you got phenomenology still. So you, I'm still interpreting this word, right? And I think that my interpretation is not infallible, even if I say that His word is. Um, actually, you're you're a fuller man. I don't know if you can say that if it's infallible or maybe it's infallible but not uh, inerrant yeah. or whatever. <laughs> We, you're asking exactly the right questions, because in precisely the chapter where I talk about theology without anathemas, first, I argue against theological infallibility. Mm. And I say that theological infallibility has two versions. One of them is the, you know, clarita scripturae, the perspicuity of scripture. And the other one is an infallible magisterium. And mm. I argue that we cannot get theological infallibility by either way. There, you know, the clarity of scripture goes out, infallible magisterium goes out. I don't believe in those. So, the magisterium would be more like the Eastern and, and Catholic. Uh, correct, yeah. Even though it does play out in non-denominational uh, sort of as well. Out, you know, de facto, they have something yeah, like it's less formal. magisterium, but it's just less formal, and yeah. they don't dress as nicely. Yeah, That's right. That's right. Uh, so, yeah, I argue that, no, the clarity of Scripture, that's not a possibility um, for various ph- phenomenological reasons. Similar reasons apply also in the case of the infallible magisterium. So there is no infallibility in theology. Mm. And because there is no infallibility in theology, we simply have you know, this cooperative, collaborative theological task of trying to understand who is this Jesus Christ who has claimed us as his, his own. Mm-hmm. So I say that, and this is another interesting point, and I talk about this in the final chapter of my dissertation. Um, you know, I think a lot of theological war 
really has to do with like soteriological anxiety. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Worried about their salvation Mm -hmm. and they have to have it all right theologically. Uh, And so therefore they go to war over things because if they're wrong about this, they're going to hell. Um, I think that, but again, that doesn't mean that we do actually have theological infallibility just because we suppose we need it. Sure. Um, right. So yeah. I say that the way out of it is to reject theological infallibility and also to opt for, you know, once more returning to Torrance and to Bart, to opt for a more realized, you know, actualized objective doctrine of the atonement. Um, so I say that Christian theology starts from two assumptions, two principles. I call these ecclesiological sola fide and ecclesiological solus Christus. Ecclesiological sola fide says that Christian, a Christian, is just a person who is convinced about himself that, you know, like the Heidelberg Catechism says, I belong to Jesus Christ, body and soul and life and in death. Mm-hmm. That's what a Christian is. Somebody who has that self-conviction, that's what makes a Christian. Whatever else they might say, whatever else they might believe, that's what makes a person a Christian. Well, a- there, there are going to be people who, who say that, right? I, I affirm this, uh, Lord, Lord, and he's like, well, I don't, I don't know you, though. Right. So that's another question. But I'm saying that everybody is a Christian, you know, phenomenal, phenomenologically speaking, what makes a person a Christian is this conception. OK, OK. They belong to Christ. Um, although I will say, like, simply calling Christ Lord is not the same thing as believing that you belong to him. So right. there's, a, there's a difference there. Okay. And then ecclesiological solus Christus is the idea that the church is all those persons whom Christ actually claims as his own. Mm. So the, the being of the church consists in entirely in the fact that Christ considers these people to belong to him, whoever these people are. Um, And I say that you can have theology without anathemas if you have a a highly actualized doctrine of the atonement, so that Christ dies and atones for the sins of all of humanity, so that everybody belongs to him, whether they know it or not. Um, And that is the basis for doing theology. Theology begins once I realize that Christ has died for me, that I belong to him, and now I want to know him more. Right. So there's no soteriological anathema anxiety because i already know that i start from the belief that i belong to christ i don't have to work my way up to him somehow through the correct theology I, my, my theology is not a condition of my belonging to him because i belong to him before i do any theology but, but so then you've you've got that by way of like universal atonement right correct yeah but so is that universal salvation no no because like in the old testament for example they were all taken out of egypt but they didn't all make it to the promised land they okay. died. So, so we have universal uh, atonement, but not uh, universal preservation. I wouldn't use exactly. These are like reformed Calvinist categories. Yeah, and exactly correct. I don't know that I would use exactly these words, but yeah. I would say, for example, that Christ dies for everybody. Everybody belongs to him, but not everybody accepts this. Some people react against this. Some people hate Christ. Mm-hmm. And to them, it's all the same, whether they belong to him or not. They hate yeah. him. Right. Okay. Such a person like that cannot be saved. Obviously, that person is lost. Yeah as long as he remains that way. Uh, but the starting point for everybody, the fundamental truth about everyone is that they belong to Christ, as far as I'm concerned, uh, because Christ has died for everybody. So that's, okay. where, that's where theology starts. That's why there's no soteriological anxiety. That's why, there's no, that's why you can have theology without anathemas, because it's not a matter of our life or death that we get these answers wrong. We already belong to Christ. We're simply trying to figure out more about him. Well, uh, I like that. But if... if um not everyone is actually saved. If everyone's atoned for, but but will not make it to the promised land, then isn't there still that anxiety to say, like, because then um, the the actual the actualization of their atonement, like they have to uh, accept it. They have to accept that he has it. That they, they do belong to Christ. 
then don't they don't don't we still get this anxiety back uh because you don't believe in the right way like you you don't accept Christ oh but you're saying it's just having the phenomenal experience of saying i belong to christ yeah i'm not there is no right way to i mean yeah. Here, once more, I will appeal to Torrance and Bard, and I will say that even our response to God is preceded by Christ's response on our behalf. Okay. You know, here I'm going to appeal to a doctrine of the vicarious humanity of Christ. Nobody responds to God perfectly. Nobody yeah, responds to the grace of the, of the gospel perfectly. Christ responds to God's grace perfectly on our behalf. Sure. Well, Christ yeah. does everything for us. We just enjoy the benefits of what he's done. What about that initial step towards not hating Christ, I guess? Well, you know what's interesting? Um here I will return to Michel Henry. Um, the way we think about things is one thing, and what we're actually doing is another, right? Okay. So it could be that um, it could be that like some people do not hate Christ; they just don't know that what they're doing is precisely a love of Christ. Hmm. Um, you know, I, for example, Christ says that anybody who does the will of God will see that my, what my words are true. So mm-hmm. he's assuming that like there can be these people out there who are doing God's will, and they will simply recognize Christ for what He is. You know, just like the shepherd, you know, the shepherd and the sheep, the sheep know the shepherd's voice and they will recognize uh, his voice when they uh, when they hear it. You know, you might interpret this in a reformed way to say that, you know, there are some elect people who are predestined by God for salvation. And then when they hear the gospel, you know, God is predestined that they will believe through the activity of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. But there's another way of understanding that there are simply some people who are already out there in the world who are already, you know, love Christ, even though they don't know that. Right. They're simply disposed in the proper way in their spirit. Uh, and when they do come across Christ, they will love him. Mm. So, you know, you can have some people who in this life perhaps never hear Christ. But to me, this is speculative. But to me, it's it's at least an open possibility that when they die at the resurrection, they will find out about Christ and they'll think, yeah, I love this guy. Mm. You know, and you can point to, for example, the, the, the parable of the sheep and the goats. The answer that they give, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and we gave you something to eat? When did we ever see you thirsty and we gave you something to drink? That answer presupposes that they'd never heard that parable, right? Yeah. Because if they'd heard the parable, they'd be able to they'd be able to follow it. Sure. Right? So, um, you know, maybe there are just some people out there who love Christ and they don't mm-hmm. realize that this is what they love. Uh, but when the time is right, they will see Christ and they will recognize His voice and they will go to Him. Yeah, that's interesting. the 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 Reformed fundamentalist is like, in my head, is like, well, then you're you're saying that there's some people who are inherently better than others because they would they would respond in love to Christ. Um, just out of their own nature, because we're all on the same level if Christ has atoned for all of us, but then cool. some of us are just more able to respond to the call while others, even though they've been bought by Christ, they still deny him just inherently. But I, I don't I don't mean to, to press you on all the finer points of your dissertation or anything like that. Just yeah, that- so I, I would say that everybody responds to Christ because of the grace of God. In the first place, we don't exist unless God causes us to exist. So there's yeah. one. Um, in the second place, the fact that a person is well disposed in spirit to respond to Christ is itself a, resp- uh, a matter of that person's interaction with God over the course of his, his entire Amen. life. Amen. You know? yeah. So God is active in more places than just where somebody happens to be preaching the gospel. <laughs> so good, man. I, that's great. That that fits like with my understanding of the world as a novel. That God is. It's actually it's not mine. It's Dr. Van Hooser's and. Uh, He's he's interjecting and he's he's engaging with us uh, through his, you know, divine interjection. Which may, maybe you don't like that, but but mm-hmm. this whole process of our lives is a is a, a dialogue with with God. We're answering or not answering, and we're hardening our hearts. Um, I wanted to to, to finish God with present to us. That's the idea. God is we're never like away from God. Even yes. if nobody's talking to us about Christ, we are never away from God. Right. Yeah. We we live in His story. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you know. 
as a result also of the consubstantiality of father and son, that means that we're never away from Christ. Right. Right. So, um, just, I want to finish. Can I ask one more question here? Yeah. Yeah. I should get going soon, but this I've been, I've really enjoyed the conversation. This has been awesome. Yeah. Okay. So final thing, um, hopefully, you know, it doesn't take too long. So how can, how is it that God can go from a state of like not creating to this? And we've talked about this a little bit, but to a state of creating, uh, Mm -hmm. from, from being like not creator to being creator. Um, Maybe well, just deny I, that. Help me out. Yeah, I would say that he doesn't. Um, okay. You know, it, because God doesn't create in time; He creates all of time at once. Um, so, you know, given that there's a world, God has always been the creator of this world. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you can talk about it modally, like across possible worlds. How is it that in this possible world, God is, creates the world, and in this one, He doesn't? Mm-hmm. Well, because God's relation to the world is indeterministic, right? And it could have happened, and it could not have happened. Uh, so, but there's not much more to say than that, and. I would also point, like Thomas says, for example, that creation is a real relation in the creature, but not in God. Okay. God is not affected or changed or, you know, transformed in any way by the fact that he creates me. But I am, right? I come into being thanks to God, but God is not changed in any way by the fact that he creates me. I depend on God, but he does not depend on me in any way whatsoever. Um, so that's, that's how I would say there is, there is no actually change in God involved from yeah. creating, you know, not creating to creating. What, what happens is the creation comes into being. In the in the possible world where he do, he he chooses not to create, uh, he's not a creator in that world. Correct. But then in in this world, he is a creator. So it seems like there's a change there between God in that possible world versus this possible world. There's something that we can predicate of God that we can't in this world that we can't predicate of him in the other world. That's well, true. We, we wouldn't even exist. But yeah. That's true, but the the not all predication is intrinsic. So sometimes I say, for example, like when I say that a building is huge, right? We talk like that all the time. But what do we mean? We just mean that it's big relative to us, not not relative to the sun or something, right? And there's no such thing as hugeness in nature. Hugeness is relative to us, right? If we were the size of cats, then you know a lot of things would be huge to us. If we were the size of elephants, then fewer things would be huge to us. Sure. sure. So when we say that something is huge, we're predicating it in relation to ourselves. We're giving it a predication of the way that it relates to us. Okay. Uh, and so also when we say that God is creator, we mean that we depend on him for our existence. But there's nothing about him. Yeah. Right? There's nothing in God that we're referring to. We're referring to ourselves and the fact that we depend on him. Okay. Just like when I call a building huge, I say that it's a lot bigger than me. But I'm not saying anything about the big the, the, the building in itself. Yeah, well, That's helpful. That, that perspectival uh and maybe that's a phenomenological move too, but I, I really like that. Dude, this has been so helpful. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for all your time. Uh, we were supposed to just talk about simplicity, but we went all over the map. I really appreciate you uh, indulging me there. No, it's it's my pleasure. I, I love talking about this stuff and I don't get to do it very often. So I'm, yeah. you know, I, I enjoyed myself also. Awesome. Well, um, dude, please come back and, and let's talk about the phenomenology and your, and your uh, research a little bit more too. I'm always down. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, this is going to have to do it, folks. This has been Parker's Pensies. And uh, as always, all glory to God.